You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, and welcome again to Inside Healthcare's limited series, A View from the Summit, recorded live and published each night of our new Health Innovation Summit. I'm NCQA Senior Multimedia Specialist Dave Smolar, inviting you to stay tuned to more mini-episodes and go back and listen to any you might have missed from earlier in the week. With over 1,300 guests in attendance at our new event this week, we wanted to keep you in the know as much as we could, so please stream download and share these conversations that I've had with some of healthcare's most important leaders, thinkers, and drivers of innovation. Now in this episode, I'm giving you the full interview I had with a healthcare leader from a perspective we haven't had on the show, at least not in a long time, the view from the Fed. John Palmieri, MD, MHA, is Senior Medical Advisor at SAMHSA, That's the HHS Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. He's also the acting director for the 988 and Behavioral Health Crisis Coordinating Office. Prior to his arrival at SAMHSA, Dr. Palmieri was division chief for behavioral health care at the Arlington County, Virginia Department of Human Services. Dr. Palmieri is licensed physician in the Commonwealth of Virginia and is board certified in adult psychiatry. He graduated from Brown University Medical School and completed his adult psychiatric residency at Massachusetts General Hospital. He paneled this week in a seminar titled Transforming Behavioral Health Crisis Care. So that's what we talked about. He focused his segment on the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, a federal initiative that we'll explain in the interview. And as you'll hear, Putting a face or even just a voice on the other end of the line for a patient in crisis can be both a comfort and a powerful tool. So 988 was created as an easier to remember, easier to access three digit code as a way to reach trained crisis counselors for individuals who are in suicidal mental health or substance use crisis. It has essentially become a portal to what has existed as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline since 2005, but we believe that with an easier-to-remember code, it will be more accessible for individuals in crisis. So we've had something on the national level for since 2005, then? Correct. And and I know that... And even prior to that, honestly. Right. And I know that there are private services that try to find areas where it's appropriate to do it. There's state level that will have crisis hotlines on campuses, for example, like that. Um, But 988 is... it's, It's different. And I'm not calling it a hotline anymore. We're calling it a lifeline because it's not just phone. How do people reach... Uh, 988 services, how they access it. Yeah, one of the important ways that the Lifeline has evolved over the past several years has been to increase uh, options for communication channels. And so text and chat functionality both have been uh, adopted over the past several years and are now ways to reach the 988 Lifeline uh, in, in current day. So tell me about the toolkit. You have a toolkit that you've developed that you're continuing to evolve to develop. Um, tell me what is in the toolkit and who are the, the partners that you've reached out to? The thousands of partners probably so far you've reached out to. Yeah, we've done a lot of work engaging partners uh, to support 988 implementation, recognizing that this is something that the federal government 
cannot do alone. We certainly have our role with respect to funding, coordinating, convening, but we are heavily reliant on partners to actually deliver the service and make sure that messaging is disseminated in their, in their communities. And so the toolkit is one effort uh, for us to align with partners on coordinated messaging for 988. So the toolkit contains a range of products, including frequently asked questions, fact sheets, radio scripts, printable materials, social shareables, a whole host of materials that, as you said, is constantly evolving with the intention that our partners, state leaders, tribal, local leaders can download this information and share it with their communities to make sure that we're promoting awareness of 988. And who, who have you not communicated with or reached out enough that you would want to be interested in? Working with municipalities, working with government, but then also working with healthcare systems as well, um, who, who would you want to talk to who you haven't had enough uh, contact with yet? Yeah, it's a great question. And we, and when, with respect to 980 implementation, we focus most immediately on the actual crisis centers, on behavioral health providers, on some of these state, territory, tribal leaders. But there's a whole host of other partners who are critical to the conversation. Hospitals, primary care, payers, uh, law enforcement, emergency medical providers, among others. So there's a lot of a lot of partners, a lot of individuals who also need to be part of this conversation. So I wanted to ask you about the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. Um, and if you could tell us a, a definition of who they are, what they do, but uh, more importantly, what your relationship is with, with them, how you've worked together on the project. So we've worked very closely with the Action Alliance through the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, which is funded through SAMHSA. And the Action Alliance really has been a, a convener of sorts, bridging the public sector with private partnerships as a way to expand the impact of the work that the federal government is doing, both in terms of communications. They've also done a lot of work with respect to data, metrics, quality improvement as well. And so they are a, a critical partner uh, as a liaison between SAMHSA and private partners to leverage a lot of the resources that exist in the crisis space generally. I know there were two technical, I apologize if, if I have to for asking technical kinds of questions, but we're in the podcast booth, you know, in a background in anything doing with audiovisual. Uh, the idea, let's say from a person's perspective, a patient, individual perspective, I can pick up the phone and I can call three digits and there's always somebody there. So breaking that down, that means you have to have, uh, the communication has to be in place the infrastructure for that has to be in place, the readiness has to be in place, the staffing, which has been diminished in many ways across the healthcare world, has to also be in place. So you can pick any or all of those and, and tell us how does this work to begin with? Yeah, it's, it's a complicated kind of orchestra of many moving pieces as you're, as you're pointing out. And so historically, there have been challenges, honestly, in the way that it's worked because there has not been uh, tremendous amount of funding dedicated to the lifeline when it was known as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So response rates, uh, the ability to, to answer calls, contacts quickly, that suffered as a result of the, of, the, of the resource challenges. And so one of the ways that we really have stepped up from the federal perspective is to provide unprecedented resources and investments in FY22 to support capacity building, which largely has gone to workforce. 
So we don't want people to be waiting when they're calling, texting, chatting into 988 to get connected to accounts. So we want to make sure that their, their call, their contact is answered quickly. And so one of the key ways that we do that is obviously maintaining the technology infrastructure uh, and supporting the administrator of the Lifeline network to oversee the function of the network. Mm -hmm. But we also need to have bodies in those seats basically answering and responding to those contacts. And then what happens next? Do people, it's obviously not the same for everybody, but in order to do this, you, you should have just a short list of what are you trying to have as the outcomes. Obviously, the outcome is better health, but literally, if somebody is answering one of those calls, they must have a short list of uh, places, directions to send somebody or referrals that they should be making. Um, so how does that work, uh, especially if you're um, trying to send them to a facility, then whoever it is who's answering the phone is talking to this one person. You need to be able to know where that person is who called in and to be able to know locally where to send them if they really are in crisis and they need something with immediacy. Yeah, those, there are many layers to your question here. So. <laughs> Uh, so yes, so one of the things that is critically important is that the counselors are trained uh, in crisis intervention, de-escalation, uh, stabilization services, so that anybody who contacts the Lifeline, they're receiving standardized risk assessment, suicide screening, and stabilization services, depending upon what their acute crisis is. There also is a critical need for that contact to be linked and to have awareness of resources in the local community to be able to refer, provide uh, navigation support and linkage to those ongoing supports. The local capacity is critically important uh, and it's one of the things that we've been very focused in on to make sure that when people are contacting the Lifeline to the degree that's possible, they are being linked to local centers based upon where they're calling from. Uh, there are challenges there because 988 does not have geolocation capabilities the way that 911 does. So we're trying to improve the location and the routing of those calls to local centers that reflect where the person is. But that, that integration with the local system of care is critically important for the follow-up. We also know that, by and large, there isn't a need for a next-level intervention in real time for people when they're contacting the Lifeline. There have been lots of studies looking at this. The Lifeline is highly effective in providing stabilization services so that people don't need to be hospitalized. They don't need an immediate higher level intervention. So the Lifeline is very effective in stabilizing those crisis situations and then providing that ongoing support. When you look at it through a lens of talking about hospital at home or care at home, then it's a lot easier to understand what you were just saying. When you have that perspective of saying, well, everything about care at home that seems to work, um, a lot of it is, especially when you have communities or you have individuals where you need to build up their trust, then anytime they can put a face or a voice, another person, um, as the face of whatever the healthcare service is, then it's a, a lot more relatable for them. Uh, sometimes if somebody needs hospital care, they, they need it, but a lot of times they see it as an, it's an institution that I'm going into, it's a building, there's a whole team, a whole gaggle of people who are coming over. Um, if they can have any of these services one-on-one, -on -one, at home, and a voice on the other end, you've already uh, leapt over so many obstacles that a lot of aspects of, of healthcare have. Yeah, that community-based support piece is really important because we know that 
historically, when people are in a mental health substance use crisis, the default response has tended to be to contact 911, which in many cases is going to lead to a dispatch and transporting that person to an emergency department where they might sit for days, weeks on end, waiting to get connected to the next sort of level of care. Uh, and so trying to uh, enhance and expand capacity in community-based settings to provide the services that people need wherever they happen to be to diminish the need for law enforcement res response for emergency department boarding. That's, that's a critical piece of why we're doing this. Okay, so I want to wrap up with one more question, and usually the one more question is, one more thing, one last thing, is usually uh, how do you see things in five years? I, I don't have to do that because you already have that as part of what SAMHSA's efforts are. There's a five-year plan that's in there. So tell us about the plan, uh, especially in terms of providing readiness for behavioral crisis care. Where should we be? Not where do we want to be, but this is a need. So where should we be in five years based on these services, other services you have in the pipeline? How should, how should this look in five years? Yeah, so the ultimate vision based upon the guidelines that SAMHSA put out for best practices with respect to crisis care is that people have access to crisis services wherever, whenever they need them, uh, regardless of where they happen to be in the country. We have set some benchmarks over the next five years for availability of three core components of the crisis continuum. So for our uh, calendar year 23, we've set a benchmark for 90% of 988 response to happen at the local level, whether it's call, chat, or text. And then in the coming years, we've sent benchmarks for access to two other critical components of the crisis continuum, mobile crisis services and crisis stabilization services. Because we know that even though the lifeline is extremely effective, there are situations where people need more than the 988 contact itself. And so we want to make sure that those people are linked to mobile crisis interventions where possible, and also to receiving and stabilization facilities that are not necessarily hospital emergency departments where people can receive less restrictive community-based care. So we have aspirations for those core components of the crisis continuum, but ultimately we want to move in the direction where there's complete universal access for people across the continuum, and also that provides linkages and upstream interventions so that we're not just creating a system that serves people when they're in crisis, but actually create a system that prevents people from having a crisis encounter. That's Dr. John Palmieri, Senior Medical Advisor at SAMHSA. More to come in our podcast limited series, A View from the Summit. As always, keep spreading the word and sharing the links for these shows. Until next time, joining you from NCQA's first annual in-person four-day Health Innovation Summit, and on behalf of NCQA's award-winning communications team, I'm Dave Smolar, and we'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.